This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This is episode two of The Godfather versus Godfather 2 versus Goodfellas. To start it off today, I've got a joke for you. Okay. What kind of drink does the Godfather drink in the morning? I don't know. An Al Pacino. Oh my god. Uh, that I know that our plan was to go into the "you're so funny" and then we do the Joe Pishy bit, but that's so not funny. I can't even I honestly say that that was funny. That was terrible. Come on, that's I'm a funny the guy. Worst joke I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> An Al Pacino. <laughs> it's awful. So let's talk casting on Goodfellas. Okay. When Martin Scorsese and Nicholas Pileggi get together to do Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese goes to his main man, his ace in the hole, Robert De Niro. You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Right. And he says, I want to do this movie called Goodfellas. I want you to be involved with it. Which part do you want? Do you want Jimmy or do you want Tommy? And Robert De Niro says, I want Jimmy. Okay. And that was the piece that fell into place for the studio to back it. And they said, okay, we're going to all in on this movie. Al Pacino and John Malkovich were actually contacted about being Jimmy Conway. Okay. Can you see John Malkovich playing this part? Oh, are you talking about Tommy or talking about Jimmy? Jimmy. Uh, I would see John Malkovich more as a Tommy character. So here's the interesting thing to me. So Al Pacino says, no, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to be typecast as a gangster. <laughs> so hold on. Hold on. Francis, I'm on the phone with Marty. Could you could you just hush, please? I'm trying to lie here. Exactly. <laughs> and and so he ends up doing, as we said, Godfather Part 3 yeah. and Dick Tracy. I say, you get behind me, we all profit. You challenge me, we all go down. There was one Napoleon, one Washington, one me. (laughs) The most charactered mobster in the world. Big boy Caprice and Dick Tracy. I'm not sure which of those movies is worse, Godfather 3 or Dick Tracy. Now that is a matchup we may have to investigate. No, we don't have to investigate those. Madonna (laughs) might carry Dick Tracy over the edge on that one. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So how do we end up with Joe Pesci? Obviously, Joe Pesci and De Niro and Scorsese have done Raging Bull together. So how do do we get to Joe Pesci? Basically, once you get De Niro in place, the next guy you go after is Joe Pesci. Right. And so Scorsese calls him up and says, hey, we're getting the band back together. Let's do this. (laughs) Right. Well, what's interesting is at the beginning of the movie, they have Tommy as basically the same age as Henry, right? Right. And that wasn't exactly right as far as reality goes. I mean, it was like, I think there's there's a 10-year age difference in them anyway. And Robert De Niro, with no makeup at all, is supposed to be playing this 28-year-old guy. I don't Mm. understand that. Right. And then when they're adults, somehow Tommy is exceeded Jimmy in age, (laughs) and Henry Hill is still much younger. I mean, I don't mind if you don't do the ages the same as reality, but let's at least stay consistent within the movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jimmy appeared to have aged rather quickly yeah. by the end of the movie. Hard, apparently a sociopathic hard life will get you that kind of age. So Joe Pesci had done Raging Bull, and then later he does Casino with Scorsese. He's kind of like Scorsese's second speed dial right. actor, right? And he hadn't he had kind of been absent from big movies from Raging Bull up until Lethal Weapon 2. Let's talk about Lethal Weapon 2. I got it. I know all those routines. Leo Getz. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's me, Leo Getz. Whatever you need, Leo Getz. You get it? <laughs> I use that all the time to break the ice when I meet people. You know, it's good. Leo Getz is exactly the opposite of Tommy DeVito. Yeah. He's kind of a wiener. Okay, funny. okay, okay. He's just a scatterbox. And yeah. They're he, both funny, though. Like funny? Like funny how? Like, why am I funny? Like I make you laugh? Like I'm a clown? Like I amuse you? I mean, you said it. What did you mean? <laughs> he's a big boy. He knows what he said. <laughs> Leo Getz is hilarious. Yeah. Okay? So imagine... We get Leo Getz in Lethal Weapon Part 2. We get Tommy in Goodfellas. And then next we get Harry from Home Alone. Shoot! What? 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 Oh, wow. You have incredibly tough gangster bookended by two comedic roles, and he lights out in both of them. All of them. All of them. All of them. He nails it every single time. It is, he is a great actor. Now we got to talk about Henry. Yeah. Ray Liotta was the guy that they hired. Okay. But they and, didn't want him. Once again, the studio did not want him. <laughs> yeah, Ray Liotta talks about how they wanted anybody but him. Yeah. And he said, in fact, I think they would have taken Eddie Murphy over. <laughs> <laughs> so they looked at Sean Penn, yep. Alec Baldwin, Val Kilmer, okay. and Tom Cruise. Okay. I think that that's an interesting movie if, you've, if you have Tom Cruise in there. It's an interesting movie with any of those guys, honestly. Yeah. Yes. You know what movie caused Martin Scorsese to want to cast Ray Liotta? Is it Something Wild? Yes. Which we have talked about multiple times now. But Something Wild is the movie that they refer to in Dumb and Dumber about the, the guy who gets chased down and gets his throat slit where Ray Liotta plays this kind of mobster-esque psychopath. Yeah, he's awesome in that. You know, the movie right before Goodfellas, he played Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams. Oh, that's right. That was before that. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. You know, we talked last week, Ray Liotta, he had been discussed to be Batman, the Joker, and Two-Face, Harvey Dent. (laughs) Right. Right. But he he turned that down, Tim Burton's Batman, to do Goodfellas. Um, The part of Karen. Karen! Why would you do that, Karen? Unsung hero of this movie. I mean, she delivers a performance beyond comparison. She's awesome. Lorraine Bracco? Oh my gosh. Nobody does that to me. Who the hell do you think you are? Frankie Valley or some kind of big shot? And you get a lot of folks who from this movie go on to do The Sopranos. You of course have Lorraine Bracco. Then you've got Michael Imprioli who played Spider. Really small part, but very memorable. Yeah, definitely. And then you also have Frank Vincent who's who plays Butts, the guy who's Beaten on the trunk at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, Billy Bats. Billy Bats. Hey, Tommy, if I was going to break your ball, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. Frank Vincent. So listen to this. So Karen, Ellen Barkin was looked at to play Karen. Okay. She's kind of in that mix. I could see that. She can play She can play disgruntled housewife for sure. And then also Madonna. What are you looking at? Well, okay. Listen, Madonna... The Material Girl was at the height of her powers in 1990. True. She instead goes on to do Dick Tracy with Al Pacino. Yep. And Warren Beatty. And, and that movie sucked. Yep. It was like Batman without Batman. <laughs> 
that's all in the casting I've got for Goodfellas. Shall we talk about the movies? Let's talk about the movies. Okay. So, The Godfather was shot in 62 days. Okay. 62 days. This is a three-hour movie. It was shot in 62 days. The entire time that they are filming this movie, Francis Ford Coppola thought he was going to be fired. <laughs> Every day, he lived in fear that they were going to come in and fire him. In fact, he's got people on his crew working against him. The assistant director is talking behind his back to the studio, and they're like, yeah, the pictures that he's taken are beautiful, but they don't go together well. They don't cobble together. Uh-huh. And so that guy at the studio, he gets another guy, like an independent editor. They piece him together, and he realizes this guy's sabotaging him. Uh-huh. And so he goes to Coppola, and then Coppola looks around and is like, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. He, he, like, preemptive strike, fires anybody who may be even partially against him. Wow. So he just goes on a firing spree. Well, you mention it. I'm going to bring it up now. There's one scene that changed everybody's mind. Once they saw that scene, everybody relaxed and said, we got this. This is going to be a good movie. Okay, let's talk about it. It's the restaurant hit scene. Yes. It is the most pivotal scene in the storyline of the movie and it is one of the greatest scenes in cinematic history wow blow my skirt back with that he is talking in his in his bible that he's written he makes notes in here that the audience has to be on edge about the fact that he's not following the instructions that he was given when he walks out of that every human being in the theater every guy sitting and watching this on tv is like drop the gun Drop the gun. Drop the goddamn gun. Yeah. Finally, he gets rid of it, right? He's yeah. he's messing it up, but it's that tension. And then he, he's struggling to find the gun, right? When he goes into the bathroom, he's struggling to find the gun. Whenever they're in the car beforehand, he's talking to these guys. He's still got the swollen jaw. I mean, it is tension, tension, tension building up to the moment. And then you've got this scene where Salazzo is talking and it's it's almost like background noise. Like it's nothing it's that is of any importance. Absolutely. And you have this slow pan in to Michael Corleone's face as he just his eyes are all over the place as he is you just you're you're with him. You're going, is he gonna do it? Is he gonna do it? Is he really gonna go through with it? Because this is the white knight that is about to do a double homicide in open public. Yeah. Once they did that scene and they do the the death, I mean, talk about point blank. Stands up, bullet to the face, boom. Shoots Captain McCluskey once, starts to choke on his food, shoots him again in the head, and he comes down like a bag of bricks on that table, and out the door he goes. So great, man. Oh, my gosh. So what great. A fantastic, fantastic scene. When he's reaching around in that old-style toilet to try to find the gun, yeah. it takes him a minute. Uh-huh. And the whole time I'm going, tick, 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 tick. Those guys are waiting for you. Let's go. Right. You know? And then he comes out. If this movie were made in the 80s, I feel like he would have said some sort of tagline right here. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't forget the Parmesan. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. Thank but, goodness it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you have that that cloud of red blood just blow out the back of the, it's very violent he in the bible needs to be a spray of blood everywhere that's wonderful yeah but you gotta get up really close like bada bing get it all over your college shirt that scene is probably the second most important scene in the whole movie right 
Okay. So Michael has just been beaten up, right? He's got the swollen jaw. He comes in. He is he has just had to save the life of his father, right? He came to the hospital. Nobody's there. He gets this poor guy who's coming with flowers to pretend like he's one of the mob members and look tough. Oh, there's so many great scenes in this, but that moment where he walks in and Sonny is giving him a hard time, you can watch the transformation as they move through the room where Sonny is in power. He's standing up. He's taller. He's above everybody else. He's talking about doing this big hit. Tom is trying to tell him this is not personal. This is just business and we got to do this right. And Sonny doesn't want anything to do with it. And Michael just sits down and he's given a hard time by Sonny. He gets up there and he gets in his face. and You, you got to get up close to the guy. You're bada bing. Yeah. And blood all over your brand new college suit, right? Yeah. And at that moment, Al Pacino puts his hands up and is kind of like shoveling him off. And then everything switches. And again, we get this scene where Michael is sitting calmly in the chair. And he says, no, here's what's going to happen. We're going to set it up where they give me a gun. I meet with them and I take them out. And it's not personal. It's just business. Yeah, that's great. That is the moment that Sonny is not going to be the Don. That is the moment that Michael takes charge. Great movie. Great movie, man. I love it. It transitions to, unlike Fredo, he's got the balls to pull the gun and blow those guys away. Yeah. Kill a police captain in the middle of a restaurant with people standing around looking at you? It's crooked cop. Yep. We got people on the payroll that <laughs> work for the newspapers, right? And then Michael goes to Italy. That scene, the, the restaurant scene, Francis Ford Coppola like, moved it up in the schedule. Because he was afraid he was going to get fired, and he needed to give them some some action. Because everybody at the studio is like, when, when is this guy going to do anything, right? So his job was on the line. Al Pacino's job was on the line. And so then he sends this movie back. It was like moved up to like day five or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so they shot that very early to get the studio to back off and let them do their thing. Work like a charm. Yep. Okay. After he shoots the Turk and the police captain, he goes to Italy. So when he goes over to Italy, he's got these two bodyguards. One of them is Fabrizio, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But he meets Apollonia. Yes. Flashback to our Purple Rain episode. Right. Who's the most beautiful girl in the village. Just just to be clear, Prince gave Apollonia her name because of The Godfather. Also a throwback. The beginning scene of Purple Rain is inspired by the last scene of The Godfather. Exactly. So he goes to Italy, marries this girl. She's killed. I mean, he's in love. He falls in love. He's going to start a family. He's settled in Sicily. How much does his life change if Apollonia is not killed? Substantially. Yeah. Substantially. I would say... I mean, we we know that he has a desire to go back because they have to tell him it's not safe for him to go back yet, right? Right. And we know that there's going to be a callback for him because Sonny is ultimately going to get killed. And Fredo has not got the chops to be the leader of the family. And so there's going to be that call. But if anybody else can step in, if, if Tom could take over, if Tom takes over and Apollonia is still alive, I think he retires making olive oil and is their Italian connection for the remainder of his days. I'm with you. I think he lives happily ever after with Apollonia and they have 18 children and they live their life. Yeah. Now then, quick question. One little nitpicky thing I've got. Okay. He spends this however long in Italy. Yeah. Long enough to meet, court, and marry a girl. 
Yeah. It's a quick turnaround. <laughs> she gets killed. Whatever. Right. She gets blown up by Fabrizio. Yeah. Which there's a deleted scene where Michael gets his revenge. Yes. Which I wish we would have seen that because that would have been really cool. Yeah. It's they actually shot it for Godfather Part 1. It was cut. They reshot it for Godfather Part 2, and it got cut there too. Yep. But all this time elapses. He goes back to the States. He's there for a year, and then he goes to CK and is like, hey, I'm back. Right. Boom. Let's get married. He's a changed character at that point. I feel like that his marriage to Apollonia was because of love and desire. I feel like his marriage to Kay was because family is important. And so you are the one that I was with before. We will go. We will have a family. We will have children and things will be as they are supposed to be. I mean, I get that, but Kay's an attractive woman. She's got no boyfriend or whatever. I mean, she's not doing anything. She's just hanging out for five years. Guess so. Okay. I don't think it was that long, but yes. Yeah. She loved him. She loved him. Which makes the impact of the final scene, the final closing door, much more impactful. Let's talk about the, it was an abortion, Michael. Oh my gosh, that's Godfather 2. So that's the end of Godfather Part 2. Right. Kay is pregnant with Michael's boy. Yep. He goes back because she's had a miscarriage, quote unquote a miscarriage. Yeah. And when he's talking to her, he's like, okay, this is the way it's going to be. And she's like, you don't understand. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. Right. I could not bring another son into this world. He is attributing her attitude and unpleasantness to the fact that she had lost the baby. And he's thinking, it's okay, it'll get better, don't worry. That's when she drops that bomb. That's a huge bomb, too. Oh, my gosh. And you know who came up with that idea? Talia Shire. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Wow. She goes and she's like, you know what? Miscarriage would hurt, but if she had an abortion, that would be an affront. To Michael. Of a boy. Yep. And she was exactly right. It was an abortion. <laughs> I know we're kind of dancing around here, but the end of Godfather Part 1. Yes. Michael goes after every head of the family. It was executed perfectly. Shoots Mo Green in the eye. By the way, Mo Green, based on Bugsy Siegel, another, executes... Another failed attempt by Warren Beatty. <laughs> Bugsy. <laughs> That's exactly right. I don't know. The end of Godfather Part 1 is just awesome. The christening scene, Michael is at the church. They have all the heads of the families killed. So at the beginning of the movie, we've we've got all kinds of Italian going on, right? I mean, it's just Italian wedding. And so there's all kinds of it there. By the way, I remember seeing this for the first time. I don't know how old I was. I just remember that it was like on on the satellite, you know? (laughs) And you get that scene where Sonny follows the bridesmaid upstairs I'm watching with my brother, and he's got a friend with him. As the first time that I have heard the, the F word used as an action verb. <laughs> where I was like, oh, so that's what that word means. Okay, I got it now. But anyway, you've got, you've, you're got you establishing some characters, and Michael doesn't show up. I mean, this is he is the main guy. Despite the fact that he was nominated for supporting actor instead of actor, he is, this is, it's his story. It's sure. the story of Michael Corleone and his rise to power in the family. But it starts off with him telling Kay, that's my family, not me. After he tells the made him an offer he couldn't refuse story, either his signature would be on, his, on the contract or his brains would be, that's when he says, that's my family, not me. And what we see is he doesn't want to be that. He wants to be the white knight that that is untouchable. And they treat him that way. No, they know he's a civilian. They won't do anything to him. Those are lines in the movie. Sure. And so we see him move from that point, not just to becoming a part of the family, but becoming the new godfather. 
Let me ask you this. Go ahead. Let me ask you this. So we do see the rise of Michael. I feel like we are allowed to love the Vito Corleone character. He's wise. Yeah. He's controlled. Yeah. He's respected. He even seems kind. He does. Yeah. He's in control, unlike Sonny. Yeah. Now, he does some things. I mean, he ordered that horse's head cut off and put in that guy's bed. Real horse's head, by the way. Real horse's head. Not a prop. They went to (laughs) a dog food factory and got a horse's head, and they didn't tell the actor (laughs) that they were putting real horses in it. So the reaction that you get is genuine. Hey, one more thing about that scene. Yeah. That house that they filmed, that scene in. Yeah. That house was the Fletch house. That's the Stanwick house in the movie Fletch. (laughs) Okay. If you need a big, fancy-looking house, here's the house that you can use. Also used in The Jerk with Steve Martin. (laughs) It's going to have a pool shaped like a heart, (laughs) a rotating bed. I don't need anything but these pants. Real quick, I just got to say this. The Luca Brasi yes. character we talked about, that was an actual, probably hitman, but at least enforcer for the Columbo family. Arsonist, yes. Yeah. So they had that scene where he interacts with Marlon Brando. So you have arguably the best actor in the world at the time trying to do a scene with a guy who is a hitman for the mob, right? right. I mean, and so he's flubbing his lines, and Brando doesn't even know how to react to this point, right? <laughs> so I, I know that at some point Brando's like, okay, I need just a minute. And you told me a story about this. Go ahead. So in order to crack him up, Brando had written a note on his tongue that said, F you. <laughs> and when he's trying to say his lines, he's stuck out his tongue, and you know he's just looking at Brando with his tongue out. So the flub of the line becomes even more pronounced. <laughs> so before all of this happens... Coppola catches this guy rehearsing his lines and he's just sitting there trying to say this one line that he's supposed to have and he's like this is true life right here this is it this guy is nervous he wants to get what he's going to say right and so that's when he's like turn on the cameras let's get this in real life so Luca Brasi practicing his lines is actually the actor practicing his line Don Colleone I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. That's fantastic. And then he gets one of the most memorable references in all of movie history. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes, right? And his death scene. Stellar. It's almost like he had seen some of those scenes in real life <laughs> and knew how to bug out his eyes in the appropriate way. <laughs> I'm going to stick my tongue out and bulge my eyes. <laughs> you know, the uh, the sleep with the fishes thing where they get the fish, that's actually wrapped in a bulletproof vest. Every frame of this movie is like a piece of art. There's a tribute that you told me about yes. that goes along with this. George Lucas referenced the Luca Brasi strangulation scene in Return of the Jedi, Jabba the Hutt is killed by Princess Leia, and it's made to look like the Luca Brasi scene in The Godfather. Love it. I love it. So you get a reboot of the strangulation scene in Godfather 2, right? Right. Pentangeli goes to have a sit-down. He Gets rid of his weapons at their request, and then he starts to get choked out, right? You know who's choking him out? 
That's Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello, Papa Don't Preach. <laughs> Madonna's dad and Papa Don't Preach. Right. And so he's he is not a guy who is in any way famous at this point. He, I mean, it was literally supposed to be he was an extra. He ad-libbed this line. Michael Corleone ah! says hello. Ah! That's true. Michael Corleone says hello. Some people say... He ad-libbed the line because he knew you got paid more if you had a speaking part. That's what I heard. But what, the way he tells the story is he goes in and they're doing rehearsals. And he's just in the moment and he just says, Michael Corleone says hi. Like he's not supposed to say anything. He's just supposed to choke him out and that's the end. And he said, Francis Ford Coppola was like, what did you just say? He's like, uh, I don't know. What did I, what did I just say? He's like, did you say Michael Corleone says hello? He's like, hmm <laughs> he goes, here's four couple of goes, keep it. I like it. Yeah. And that's how that line gets in there. It doesn't really make sense. Well, it's like it's like they're trying to throw the fire off of them because obviously Michael Corleone is not the guy who's trying to kill him. Right. But it's like, hey, it's it's trying to throw him off. I don't know why you'd try to throw off the guy that is dying. I don't get it. I don't really know. It's confusing. Okay. It's based on a true life event. This is like this literally happened to a gangster called Joe Gallo. It's same type Crazy of Joe Gallo. Crazy Joe Gallo. I've got some questions. Okay. Here's my question about Godfather Part 2. Uh-huh. Michael is in his bedroom one night, and he notices that the curtains are Where open. my wife sleeps. <laughs> Where my children play with their toys. <laughs> Actually, Kay is the one who says, Michael, why are the curtains open? Yeah. And he's like, hmm, why are the curtains open? Boom, Ding. hit the deck. Boom, yeah. machine guns. Okay. Yeah. So, obviously, there's been a hit put on Michael. Yep. By Hyman Roth. I get that now. We know now, yes. The first time I saw it, I was like, who who did this? Like, what? I don't really get it. Mm-hmm. And I and we find out that Fredo is the one who betrayed him. We know that Fredo is talking to Jimmy Ola because he gets that phone call in the middle of the night. Yes. So he gave them some information. And Fredo thinks that they lied to him. So he's like, hey, you guys lied to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that Fredo knew it was a hit. The question is, what did he give them? Right. Did he open the curtains? I don't know. I don't know what he gave, gave him. Maybe he just said he knows he'll be home this evening because they've got this big party planned. Right. And this is where his bedroom is. I don't know. I, we don't get that information on what Fredo told them that they used as information to put a hit on him. Okay. So we know that, that Fredo gave some sort of information that led to the execution of this hit. There are only two possibilities as far as Michael can tell, right? It's either, it's either Pentangeli or it's Hyman. Yeah. Roth, right? Right. And so he's got to figure out which, and he puts both of them to the test. And whenever Pentangeli has not been drinking, he's respectful and there's, he can just tell this isn't the guy. This is not the guy who would do this. This isn't it. And so then he goes to, he goes to visit Hyman Roth in this little suburb home in Florida and they're both talking to each other in such complimentary ways and they are both just full of crap. You seem like a nice intelligent young boy. Oh, your wisdom is very appreciated. Yeah. I mean it's they are talking in a way which we as the observer for the first time you're just thinking, okay, there's mutual respect. No. It is Michael keeping his enemies closer. Yeah. I didn't catch that the first time I saw it, I'm like, yeah. what's going on here? These guys like each other. You know, they're gonna team up. And Fredo completely gives himself away because when they do ultimately end up in Cuba, Johnny Olo comes over and Fredo immediately gets awkward and he's like, oh, yeah, we never met before. And then he's not one to talk. But as Fredo has more and more to drink, they go to this club where we the only information we have is that there's something large and inappropriate going on. <laughs> 
and the Cuban sex show. And and Fredo's alcoholed up mouth starts talking about how Johnny Olo knows the place and that Hyman Roth would never go to a place like this. And it's at that point that Michael realizes it's Fredo who's betrayed him. So here's my question to you. Okay. Michael tells Tom Hagen, tell Fredo, I know that he was misled. Tell him to come home. It's okay. And me as an observer, I'm like, okay, Michael's bad. Michael's evil. But he's not going to kill Fredo. I mean, Fredo's a brother. He's a member of the family. And then he gives that look to his security guy. And it, all he does is just glance at him. And the next thing you know, when they <laughs> Fredo the fisherman out on the boat gets a bullet in the back of the head. He was saying his Hail Mary. Well, <laughs> here's my question. Okay. So I love the cinematic way that this happens. Michael gives the death order with a glance. Yep. But I'm thinking practically to myself, if I'm the security guard, I'm like, was that the like a weak week? Like, <laughs> are you blinking at me or like, should I? Re- you know, girl, I just want to be sure. The girls in the audience get it better than the boys because the, the difference between a girl glance of hey, check this guy out, and hey, this guy is really creeping me out is <laughs> so minuscule, but they get it. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. It's 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 cinema, I guess. It's executed so well. Here is the here's the problem that I have. I don't have very many problems with either one of these movies, but they're down in Cuba, and the guy who's supposed to be this covert hitman is dressed in a black turtleneck the entire time. <laughs> like what? It's standing out with like a sore thumb. Everyone else is wearing white. <laughs> you got a black turtleneck sweater and a black hat on. I have the perfect outfit for this uh, this <laughs> job. So if you're not wanting to look like a mafia hitman, <laughs> good job. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about Robert De Niro's performance real quick in Godfather Part Two. Okay, so Robert De Niro was one of the guys that they really seriously considered for Sony. They actually offered him the part of Polly. Polly's the guy who was sick the day that uh, he was supposed to drive Vito Corleone around and Vito Corleone gets killed. you want to touch on the oranges right now? Yeah, let's talk about the oranges real quick. Okay, go. So anytime you see an orange or even the color orange in The Godfather, yeah. it signifies death. Somebody's about to get it. Yep. Okay? So like Vito is in that market and he's buying fruit. He's like, hey, how much for the oranges? Which he gets shot about 75 times. Yeah. The way bullets are used in both of these movies, I got a problem with. Okay. Okay. This is a small nitpick, but <clears throat> Vito Corleone gets shot a bunch 20 times. Yeah, a bunch. 30 times. Yeah. And he recovers. Okay. Yeah. He gets, you know, he has to talk a little bit because he got one in the throat. All right. Sonny, when he's executed, 150 times? Um, I can actually give you the exact figure there. <laughs> uh, the answer is it is a 147 squibs on Sonny. James Conn's telling this story, and he's like, as the guy's putting the squibs on me, he tells me, I never put this many squibs on anybody in my life. <laughs> James Conn's like, I don't think it's necessary that you should tell me that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene is ridiculous. Okay, so I'm going to nitpick that scene. For what? The- so, no! Yes, so what? Sonny's execution is, is total junk, okay? Oh, no. So here's the deal, all right? So... <sighs> This is the this is how Sonny's getting killed. Okay, here's the plan. Yeah, I'm gonna have a woman call Connie's house. Connie's gonna answer. She's gonna think her husband is cheating. So she's gonna yell at her husband and throw dishes all over the place. 
So her husband gets mad, beats her up. That's it. Break it all, you spoiled guinea brat. Break it all. That causes Sonny to get mad. He goes over, and on the way, he's unprotected, so they're going to shoot him up a billion times. You think that's the most complicated plan in all of these <laughs> movies? Really? Yeah. So you don't have a problem with the scene itself. You just have a problem with the plan and how it gets executed. What about well, the fact that Paulie's sick on the day that Vito's supposed to get hit? Well, <laughs> How do they know that Fredo is going to drop his gun like a little pansy? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Here's the other thing. Yeah. When Sonny gets shot, he managed, I mean, he gets like 20 through the windshield, mm-hmm. gets out, stands up, gets another 40. Yep. I mean... It's hard to kill. <laughs> and the whole time he's like, uh, uh, uh. Have you seen the scene in The Simpsons where Bart gets those, gets snowballed? No. Oh, it's great because they match it shot for shot. Like every twist and turn, Bart is doing it as he's getting pummeled really? by snowballs. It's, yeah, it's classic. Okay. I wanted to mention Robert De Niro in Godfather Part Two, playing young Vito Corleone. Yes. Almost his entire performance is in a foreign language. Yeah. He didn't speak Sicilian. He didn't speak Italian at all. And so he not only had to learn a new language, but he had to learn how Marlon Brando would deliver those lines. Yeah. He changed his voice a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. So he actually spent several weeks in Sicily just trying to pick up the dialect, trying to pick up the language. But yeah, his entire performance is in a language that he does not speak. He has, I think, maybe four lines in the whole movie that are not in Italian, and he still gets nominated for the Oscar. It's incredible. Yeah. I I think that is my favorite part of that movie, to see the, to see the old 20s storyline of him coming to the new world, him becoming the Don, that whole execution. It's a great story. Again, beautifully shot. Him on rooftops, yep. watching him walk. The stuff with the turning the light so that there's like this distraction and darkness and then the the towel wrapped around it that was something they actually did to make it a, like a silencer so that people wouldn't hear it and then it catches on fire this is all real life stuff it's incredible right another fantastic movie man yep I gotta say ah oh, crap I can't leave The Godfather 2 yet <laughs> the scene with Fredo where he's laying down in that chair while Michael's talking to him I mean, could you make and could you make somebody look any weaker than I'm stuck in a chair <laughs> that won't stop reclining? Yeah, it's fantastic. It looks and pathetic. His yeah, performance is brilliant. I'm not dumb. I'm smart. <laughs> I can handle stuff. I'm not dumb like they say. No, I'm smart. You're my kid brother. Before we get off Godfather, the bada bing that James Con says when he is acting like he's shooting yeah. Michael in the head. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get him close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. That was a phrase that he heard from an acquaintance uh-huh. who was a mafia guy. Okay. So James Conn adopted it, added it in, and yeah. now it is widely accepted as mafia language, bada bing. Yep. One of those ways that the Godfather affected the world. Let's talk about Goodfellas. Let's talk about Goodfellas. There's an actor that we didn't talk about when we talked about casting, but there's one guy, so far as I can tell, one guy that was in all three of these movies. His name is Frank Severo. 
He played the part in Godfather 2 of the friend of the young Vito who works in the grocery store, whose dad owns the yeah. grocery store, who has the girlfriend, who's the actress that they see get threatened and he cowers away and yeah. Yeah. runs away. Yeah, yeah, Talk yeah. about how beautiful she is, right? That's you know? right. That's right. And so he had also been an extra. He had been like in some of the street scenes in Godfather 1. Yes. Gets the part in Godfather 2. And then he's also... Carbone in Goodfellas. He's the guy who gets frozen solid and takes three days to thaw out in Goodfellas. I was so sad when I saw that. I'm like, no, I think Kill Carbone. He was one of the guys. It's terrible. So I looked him up, and interestingly, while he was de- developing the Carbone character, he lived next to some writers who were writing episodes of The Simpsons. <laughs> you know that in The Simpsons, they have the Fat Tony character that's supposed to be like the Godfather character, and he's always got two guys with him. One of those two guys is named Louie. And if you look at Louie, he looks just like Carbone in Goodfellas. And so when the Simpsons episodes came out, Frank Severo was like, they stole my identity. I worked this character. Because it's not a real guy. He's not playing like an actual character. He is playing a part that he kind of created that was an amalgamation of several other guys. Right. And so he sued him, but he lost. Oh, okay. Yeah, but if you look at Louis, looks exactly like uh, Frank Severo out of Goodfellas, who, by the way, was born in Sicily, Italy. He could be a made man if he needed to be. (laughs) By the way, I heard that they recently changed that rule. The mafia did. Well, I can see that. Because you don't have to be pure Sicilian. And it's, I'm like... Do they have a rule book, like an actual rule book? Well, I mean, there's a lot of there's, and this is important. The idea of these movies, they 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 made ceremonies that emphasized how important it was that you do follow their rules. They've got a, I mean, a part of their ceremony is you prick your finger, get the blood running in your finger, you wipe it on the picture of a saint, and then you burn the picture. And the idea is this is what should happen to you if you ever are a traitor to the family. So. It's important for Goodfellas, right? The idea of Goodfellas. And then the other one is this code of silence. You never talk about being a member of the Mafia with anybody else. Henry Hill violates both of those rules. Always keep your mouth shut. Never rat on your friends. There you go. You know, we briefly touched on the How Am I Funny thing with Joe Pesci. Yeah. That was an actual event that happened to Joe Pesci when he was a waiter. He told a mobster that he was a funny guy. And the guy did not take that well. Oh, my gosh. Especially from a young-ish waiter punk kid. Yeah. Funny? Funny how? How am I funny? What a great scene that is. It, it It's probably the most memorable scene in the movie. Definitely. It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, <laughs> you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? <laughs> Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? man, let me understand this, because I don't, you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to f- amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? 
and it builds the tension and Tommy is kind of this driving force of the danger that is always lurking over the shoulder of members of the mob, right? You never know when your best friend is going to put an ice pick in the back of your head. And, and, and Henry Hill said, this is the way I lived. I was constantly scared that Tommy was going to do something and going to go off. He was legitimately this kind of psychopathic character and he wasn't a little guy. That's the thing, yeah. He was a big freaking, like, bare fist fighter, big guy. So not only do you have the psycho killer, you've got one that can do the job quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Henry Hill said in watching Joe Pesci do the performance, he nailed the character by 90% of how the real guy was. Wow. Yeah. Do you know that this movie has 321 F-words or F-word variations? (laughs) What do you want to tell me now, tough guy? I said, Ming, what are you doing here? I thought I'd tell you to go f*** your mother. <laughs> There's so many wonderful ways to use the I mean, right? you know, uh, as of 2020, it is number 15 on the list. Wow. Uh, Martin Scorsese bested himself with The Wolf of Wall Street, and apparently it has more F-words. So Things that happen in the movie that happen in real life, yeah. you, can, you can probably guess... I mean, if you're watching it and you're going, oh, my gosh, this the more crazy the scene is, the more likely that it happened. For example, the scene with Spider. Yeah. This is true life. Like Tommy DeSimone really killed a guy for saying, go F yourself. Right. Right. I mean, it was and it was after doing the shooting at him. After Tommy had shot him in the foot. Shot him in the foot. Days later, comes back. He's a little upset because he's in a cast, right? And so Tommy's busting his balls again. And so he's like, you know what? Go F yourself. And the guys who are sitting around Tommy are like, oh. And they start to bust his balls a little bit too. And that's when he pulls out his gun and blows the guy away. Incredible. So when Michael Imperioli performed the scene, you know, when he gets shot on the chest, he's got these drinks on him. And he goes flying back. Yeah. Well, he actually sliced his hand open on the glass. Continued to shoot the scene. Finished it out, lying there in both fake blood and real blood. Got all the squibs gone and his real bleeding hand. And so once the scene is done, they're like, oh, crap, that's a bad cut. We need to take you to the hospital. They rush him over to the hospital. He's at the ER. The ER is like, ah, and they get him in there and they start working on his hand. And then they start to try to work on his chest. (laughs) And then they're like, no, 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 these are squibs. This isn't isn't real. We're, We're actors. This is a movie. And they're like, oh, go back in the waiting room. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I want to talk about the beginning of Goodfellas. Okay. Martin Scorsese does a couple of interesting creative choices, I think. Okay. So number one, you start off with the Billy Bats scene. Middle of the movie. Well. Like, no, I'm saying the middle of the story starts the beginning of the movie. That's right. Yes. So they're just driving and you hear this banging around. So they pull over, open the trunk, and there's a guy that's clearly been beaten. And they just stab him with kitchen knives and shoot him. Shoot him, stab him. You're thinking, holy shnikes, this is horrible. It's right out of the gate. And then Ray Liotta slams the trunk shut and says, all my life I wanted to be a gangster. Boom. Into the, back into 1955. Fascinating choice by Scorsese to pluck that out of the middle of the story. Start off the movie with that. Scene where he gets beat by his dad for missing school. True to life. Really happened. Also followed by the scene where they threaten the mailman, stick his head in the oven. True to life, really happened. You don't deliver mail. You see this kid? No mail. (laughs) (laughs) Poor mailman. 
I really want to get to the Lufthansa story. It's interesting. This is Henry Hill's story, and he's got a really small part in this, but this could be an entire movie all to itself. It's incredible, the Lufthansa heist. So there's a podcast out there. It's called Infamous America. And they've got a series. What is it, six episodes? I think it's a six-episode. Six-episode series devoted just to the heist. That's it. Not the whole Henry Hill story, although they do give you plenty of information there. But just about that heist. Infamous America from friend of the show, Chris Wimmer. For those of you who may not really remember... It's when they rob the airlines. They were actually bringing cash. Yeah, GIs had come and exchanged money. There were two different two different heists. One was the Air France heist, and the other one was the Lafonza heist. Uh, two separate things. Both of them really occurred, and both involved the same guy that worked for the airport, right? The only guy, by the way, that was prosecuted in the case until, like, late 2000s. It was a, it was a mystery until 2014. Yeah, I mean, well, because they killed everybody. That part is true as well. Jimmy got super paranoid, and he started killing everyone who was involved. That's the reason why he's offing everybody at the end of the movie. Right. And so... What are you you buying this fur coat for? I told you not to buy anything! Right. The point where... Take it off! Take it off! Henry Hill's asked to go do a hit down in Florida and says at that point I knew I was never going to come back from Florida it's at that point he has to choose he's like do I keep on living or do I obey the rules of the mob right I guess I'll have to choose keep on living by the way when they're doing the interview scene talking to him about the witness protection program with him and Karen yes the guy who's doing the interview is the actual prosecutor investigator of the case He's the real guy. He and Henry Hill actually became friends after this. Like they would, they tour and do talks together. It was, it's crazy. That is crazy. But the guy, the real guy who did it, he's like, I'm sitting there with these cameras around me, having a conversation with these two actors that I've actually had with Henry Hill and Karen. It's amazing. You know the movie My Blue Heaven with Steve Martin and and Rick Moranis. Yeah, that is based on the Henry Hill going into the witness protection program. That movie was written by Nora Ephron, yes, who is married to Nicholas Pileggi. There you go. Arugula. I haven't had arugula in six weeks. What's that? It's a vegetable. What's the difference between a light bulb and a pregnant lady? <laughs> you can unscrew a light bulb. <laughs> um, you should not be in the frozen food section because <laughs> you could melt all this stuff. My Blue Heaven and Goodfellas are same source brothers. Material. Yes. Same source material. Married couple wrote, wrote both of them. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the romance that occurs between Karen and Henry. Karen! Okay. Before it gets to the crazy stage, right? <laughs> when he's just ignoring her and then he stands her up, he doesn't care about her. Right. It's not until she comes and confronts him in front of all of his friends and is screaming at Who him. Who do you think you are, Henry Hill? You don't stand me up. You know what happens? What? He gets turned on. Yeah, he does. And then he starts and then he starts charming her and then she gets turned on. And then that's the moment you have this awesome scene where it's a one shot, right? Follows them the whole time as they pa- bypass the line, they go downstairs, they walk through the back hallway. He tips the guy who opens the door for him 20 bucks. He walks through the kitchen, he walks through. They're bringing in a brand new table to this full restaurant so that he has a place to sit. And Karen is like, what do you do for a living? Exactly. I'm in construction. Yeah. 
It's you amazing. You don't have hands like you're in construction. <laughs> and then the guy that they talk to who's managing the COPA, which is where they are, actual manager of the COPA. And the guy who's performing the comedy is actually Henny Youngman. Oh, yeah. Take my wife, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's followed by the scene where she gets... She gets roughed up by the... The guy across the street? Tennis pro guy. Yeah, whatever he was. And then he goes over and just pistol whips the crap out oh, of him. Oh, man, I love it. The guy's in the driveway. in his own drive. He's like, you want some too? Bam! Bam! Oh, my gosh. That was rough. And what did it do? It turned her on. Yeah. Of note... Yes? Paulie never takes phone calls, right? Yes. He never takes phone calls because he thinks the phone can get you in trouble. And it seems silly. Because somebody's got to take a phone call, write down the message, go over to Polly's house, talk to Polly, get Polly's information, go back to where they were, call back on the phone to give the information, right? Because he won't talk on phones, which seems all silly until the end of the movie when talking on the phone is exactly what gets him caught. Yeah, that's exactly right. Polly, played by Paul Sorvino, who for me growing up, I used to watch the movie Oh God with George Burns. He is the crazy Bible thumping pastor. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I personally have been chosen to render the benediction at this year's Super Bowl. And he is actually Italian, but he just felt like he wasn't right for this part himself. Yes. He didn't know how to play the character. And he said he was literally about to go out to a show. He glanced up at himself in the mirror and he caught a look, a look that he wasn't even trying to give. And he's like, ah, that's Polly's look. By the way, according to Ray Liotta, Robert De Niro put a fake severed horse head in his trailer <laughs> As an homage to The Godfather. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is fantastic. So the the thing about these movies is that they make me hungry. <laughs> Am I wrong? They make me hungry. I even texted you while I was watching The Godfather. I'm like, I want some spaghetti. And you know what I did? I pushed pause and I went and I made some spaghetti with meatballs. Did you slice the garlic with a razor blade? Though? No, no. But I did put the wine and the sugar. <laughs> Brown the, the sausages. Sh- brown the sausage. Because Italians don't brown. They fry. <laughs> right. Right. So you've got this whole th- scene where Clemenza is talking about food and how to cook. And then in Goodfellas, you've got the scene where they're in prison. They're in prison. And they it's basically like a bachelor pad. Yeah. Ever get, I mean, it's like my college house growing up right right and they're they get all the food that they want they get steaks they get garlic that they can slice with the razor so it just melts in the butter and it makes me hungry and then you've got the whole scene where he's at his house where henry hill's at his house and it's tell him to keep stirring the sauce keep stirring the sauce he gets the meat sauce and he's talking about all these things and it's as though those things are just as important if not more than selling the drugs and avoiding the cops (laughs) i know right let's talk about the helicopter at the end of the movie okay is that a paranoid delusion or is that just a helicopter? I think it's really following him. I think it's definitely okay. really following him because you're not going to have cops come read the scene after a phone call without already having some information and being ready with phones tapped and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I definitely think that they were tailing him. By the way, I just want to mention this. Mike Starr plays Frenchie in Goodfellas. Yeah. He also plays Frenchie in another movie called The $10 Million Getaway. Okay. Which is a movie about the Lufthansa heist. Oh, okay. And he plays Menthol in Dumb and Dumber. Fellas, you think we could listen to the radio or something? Oh, yes. Okay, yes. I know who you're talking about. Yes. Okay, he played yeah. the he same the, character. He was the inside guy at the airport. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Love it. Yes, love it. $10 million getaway. How do you know I had gas? 
Let me tell you something. They ain't never getting aspen. <laughs> My pills. Okay. So Jimmy gets paranoid and he starts whacking everybody that's involved in this heist. Yeah, super cool. True to life. True to life. That's exactly what's happened. Carbone ends up in the freezer, but they found a like a an address book sewn into his coat, and that's how they got that's how they got their information. That's right. That's right. And so so the the hits that Jimmy put out, all of that's true to life. And then while that's going on, Tommy's becoming a made man, right? And it's all just a setup just to lead him down the primrose path until they put a bullet in the back of his head, true to life. Jimmy gets the call, finds out that Tommy's been killed. And after he's been often one guy after another, it's at that point that he starts to cry. Yeah. The sociopath gets killed, and that leads you to cry. But you've murdered all of your friends and your associates, and it's not a problem. Right. Henry Hill says it's the only time I ever saw Jimmy Burke shed a Wow. Let's talk about that. So the Lufthansa thing is coming down. Jimmy is monitoring these people. They're spending money. He's, he gets mad at them for spending money. But in real life, there was one guy. They call him Stax in the movie. Yeah. That guy was in charge of the getaway vehicle, and he was supposed to... Take it to an impound yard. Two jobs. Replace the license tag. Yes. Crush the car. Yes. That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do. He went to his girlfriend's house and he fell asleep. And they immediately found the they car. They found the car. With his prints all over the place. And so guess what? They're hot on the trail of all these guys. Early appearance by Samuel L. Jackson, by the way, in the movie. This is pre-almost everything. I mean, he'd been the guy... He had been the robber in Coming to America, but he hadn't been in hardly anything. It was just four years before Pulp Fiction. Wow. Samuel L. Jackson and Stacks. One quick thing I want to talk about before Final Judgment. Okay. In 1974, The Godfather premiered on NBC over two nights. Both nights, it ended at 11 p.m. And in both nights, the New York City Municipal Water Authorities had some overflow problems (laughs) from all the toilets flushing at the same time. Because you can't pull yourself away. Yeah. That's why I'm so thankful that this movie had an intermission. Let's talk about the reception of these movies. Okay. All right. Obviously, The Godfather was a nuclear bomb. Smashing success. Yep. Not uh, only that, I mean, it made a ton of money, but it won Best Picture. Yeah. Brando won Best Actor. Didn't show up. Let's talk about that. All right. So Marlon Brando won the Best Actor Oscar for The Godfather. But instead of going to the Oscars, he set Sasheen Littlefeather. She went up. Roger Moore, James Bond, offers her the statuette. She would not accept it and proceeded to have a speech about the film industry's mistreatment of Native Americans. Yep. I've watched the whole reel of this, and I think she handled herself in a very diplomatic and, for what she was doing, handled it very well. So Marlon Brando became the second actor to refuse a Best Actor Award. Do you know the other one? No. George C. Scott. Dang it, that's what I was going to say. For Patton, which was also Francis Ford Coppola, right? Francis Ford Coppola wrote the screenplay. By the way, The Godfather Part II won Best Picture. Yes. Goodfellas was nominated for Best Picture and lost to Dances with Wolves. Mario Puzo won for Best Writing. James Caan was nominated. Robert Duvall was nominated. Al Pacino was nominated. Al Pacino boycotted the Oscars because he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and he felt like he should have been nominated for Best Actor because he was in he had more screen time than Brando. Francis Ford Coppola was nominated for Best Director. Oh my gosh, we can't not talk about the music. 
This is one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. You got two keys, two key pieces of music here. One is a waltz, which is three four time, and the other one is in four four time. But it's got this beautiful Italian. Da, na, 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 na. I will walk around whistling these tunes at work. They are beautiful and sad and sweet and take you right down to Little Italy. It is, it's, they're all by Nina Rota, who did a ton of great movies. He, he composed the soundtrack for Romeo and Juliet, which is, I mean, that's, that's up there with like Beethoven and Bach. I mean, it's amazing stuff that he's done. And this, the piece of music that he did in Godfather 1, of course, they used again in Godfather 2. Nina Rota, love it. Soundtrack for Goodfellas. It's all popular music. It's all pop music out of the head of Martin Scorsese. Here's what here's the song we need for this scene. On the script, before we get an actor cast, before we before one photography piece is made, I am telling you these are the songs that we have. These songs that come out of Martin Scorsese's head in the in the 50s, you've got Rags to Riches, you've got Life is But a Dream, you've got Baby I Love You and Beyond the Sea, and then when they move up into the 60s and the 70s, you get Sunshine of Your Love and that awesome scene where they're panning in on Robert De Niro's face and Layla, the piano music. Oh my gosh, you couldn't pick a more perfect song. That where the switch happens in Layla and it goes into that piano music. Perfect. Perfect. He, he knew when he was filming that scene, he's like, you know what would be great here? Layla. Except not that regular part of Layla, the piano part of Layla. Yeah. You know, he also used, he wanted to use Frank Sinatra's version of My Way at the end of the movie. Yeah. But Sinatra wouldn't let him. So then he used Sid Vicious's version instead. That's perfect. <laughs> one quick thing. So Godfather Part 1, one best picture. Godfather yeah. Part 2 won Best Picture. Yeah. There's only been two sequels that received Best Picture. Godfather Part 2 and Return of the King. I was about to say Lord of the Rings. It's yeah. got to be. Yeah. Joe Pesci's acceptance speech at the Oscar for winning Best Actor. It's like the shortest in Oscar history. Okay. He said, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that's it. Nice. All right, on to final judgment. I thought he was going to say, dances with effing wolves. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not ready yet. We've been mulling this around for weeks. This is driving me nuts. This is like, this is worse than Major League versus Bull Durham. This This is like the hardest comparison I think we have ever had. I don't really have a good read on you on this. Ah. Okay, you got to go first. I, I'm still going to, I'm probably going to change my answer three times okay. in the next 30 seconds. All right, so these are some of the greatest movies of all time. Reaching their 50th birthday, they have major cultural impact, and I have gone back and forth. I think I've had every movie at the number one spot at some point on my list, but here is where I come down. Number three for me is The Godfather Part Two. So many of the interesting characters from Godfather Part One have been killed off. You know, we changed some people, characters, and the importance and stuff like that um i thought the stuff in cuba was beautiful and amazing i I felt incredibly sad when fredo got killed but still number three for me number two is going to be goodfellas now i love pesci i love de niro i love leota i love brocco i love what what scorsese has done with goodfellas i watch it over and over again i think the vignette nature of it makes it easier to kind of jump in and jump out of you've got the Lufthansa stuff, you've got the beatings and the Billy Bats part and all this stuff, the mafia life. Love Goodfellas. That brings me to number one overall. It's the original. It's the oldest one. It's 
Marlon Brando as the Godfather, the epic story of the family in crisis and the ascension of Michael to power. For me, that is number one. D, where are you? Okay. I can't fault you for anything that you've said, but I am completely like, we, we don't agree on any one <laughs> thing, not one thing, single thing. Okay. So this is where I fall and this could be different tomorrow. It could be different in five minutes, but for right now, at this moment, I have to say in the number three spot for me is Goodfellas. It is fantastic. It is a unique animal. Like we talked about before, the original Godfather, it made you want to be a gangster. It made you want to be a part of the mafia. Goodfellas freaked me out, made me not want to be. I mean, I'm just, Joe Pesci is terrifying in every respect but action-packed fun filled even with all of its uncomfortableness great movie great soundtrack great direction by martin scorsese i mean talk about an icon i'd be willing to spike the football on this one this is the best martin scorsese movie that exists wow i like the departed i like uh i, I like raging bull i like those movies but this one to me is his coup de gras but for me it's number three which leaves us with the two Godfather movies. And they're both beautiful. Like every single frame is a piece of art. I mean, it's so beautifully photographed and Coppola, it is his masterpiece. There he has done nothing before or since that has, uh, has amounted to what this thing is, but it's so, so good. And it's hard to pick between these two because they are linked hand in hand. But when it comes down to it, the story that I find the most fascinating, the most engaging, is the rise of Vito Corleone from immigrant in Italy to the dawn. I think that movie is, or that storyline is fascinating. And the fact that it's almost all in Italian, it is beautifully done. And so for that reason, The Godfather has to finish at number two for me. And number one is The Godfather Part Two. Very good. Hey, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Okay, go. Greatest sequel of all time is what? Empire Strikes Back. Exactly. Okay. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. Well, for once, you and I agree. 100% Spike the Football, Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Come back next week. D, I'm so excited what we're going to talk about next week. We've got two albums that we're going to compare that are turning 40 this year. And there is a song on this upcoming one that we're going to do. It's Toto 4. Yeah. We've been playing it for 40 years and it hasn't got old. It's been downloaded 1.1 billion times. It's incredible. We're going to talk about Africa. We're going to talk about a song about Rosanna Arquette and <laughs> some of the, the greatest session musicians of all time. Yeah. And we're going to compare that to some guys who were very pretty, but still managed to learn to play their instruments pretty well and became rock icons of the 80s, Duran Duran. Both of these albums came out in 1982. And so it's only fitting that we match these guys up. Pretty boys who just learned to play their instruments versus a bunch of, well, for lack of a better term, ugly guys who were the best musicians of the day. It's an interesting comparison. Toto 4 versus Rio by Duran Duran. Everybody be sure and hit the follow button on your podcast app so that you are sure not to miss that episode. And if you would do this for me, all right, write a review for us. Give us five star rating, write a review and throw in either The Godfather or Goodfellas or an offer we can't refuse. And we will read your review on our next podcast. That sounds like an offer they can't refuse. <laughs> there you go. See you back here next week. 
all of my life, I wanted to be a podcaster. 